0: Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. G'day everyone, welcome to the Footyology Podcast Lockdown Edition number 378. No, not really, that's just what it feels like in these isolated times and uh, in this horrible period for us all. hope you're all surviving, doing the right thing, uh, isolating yourselves, social distancing, washing your hands all those mantras that have come to be part of our daily existence. Uh, I'm in the Connolly studios again, but my footyology co-host, Mark Fine is pushing the buttons down at Southern FM. As I say, a very good morning to him.
1: Good morning, Rowan. Not that I really know what morning it is, to be honest. Uh, Days really fold into other days now, don't they? It's it's quite quite difficult to work out what day it is, but... I'm assuming it's Easter Monday, is that correct? Uh,
0: it is, and uh, ordinarily at this time, we would have read about our 15th recap of the fantastic Hawthorne-Geelong rivalry. Yeah, that's right. And uh, we would be gearing up for what is no doubt one of the big matches of the AFL season. And it's, um, that's where I'm starting to lose it a bit. I'm, I, for a couple of weeks there, I was remembering, okay, we're up to the equivalent of this round or that round. I think this is what was round four.
1: Is it? Oh, uh, yeah, think... yeah. We're heading into round four.
0: Right. Okay. So, how's the how's the make believe season going? Who's looking good?
1: Oh, f- Richmond, I guess. I'm, I'm not quite sure. I've I've really disconnected myself from footballers. I think you'd need to. It, it's yeah. When it starts again, fantastic. But until then. Really, like all other Australians, I'm just curve-flattening.
0: All right. Well, that was the Footyology podcast. (laughs) And uh, we'll – no, well, we've got plenty to talk about. Oh, yeah. There's uh,
1: there's there's how how we do things still works.
0: Yeah, uh, there's certainly a lot of um, speculation. That's going to be the uh, bulk of the footy chat, I suspect, in the next few weeks. I'll tell you what isn't speculation, though, Fanny, and that is – hamburgers, and one variety of them in particular.
1: Andrew's Hamburgers, the magnificent Andrews. It, it's fantastic to know that that takeaway establishment continues to service not only the people of Albert Park, because they're 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park, but also the surrounding suburbs. I, I know that under the current rules, you probably shouldn't be driving too far for an Andrews hamburger, but I reckon it's an essential service. They're still out there. They're providing that essentially beautiful bun, that superb juicy patty, all the fresh vegetables that you eulogise every week, Rowan. So it's essential to get good food, and Andrew's hamburgers are still doing it, 144 Breadport Street, Albert Park.
0: That's a great plug, and I I like the way you have finally now picked up on the adjectives inherent in a good plug, particularly when it comes to food. Actually, I'm going to be talking a bit later, about food. Of course, not to the same quality of the magnificent. Andrews Hamburgers, 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. Tell you what, Fanny, I'm also in the market for a house that isn't falling around, uh, falling down around my ears. Can you help me?
1: West Point Properties, Nick Spartels. This will finally, in the end, we will return to our normal lives. And why not celebrate life knowing that you might end up in your house for longer than you expected in a beautiful house and west point properties Nick bartell provides that build so there you go that's only to think about he's also located in in the southeastern melbourne
0: something to keep your eye on great house renovations because life will get back to normal please believe that I'm certainly trying to remind myself of that uh, as we go through these strange days indeed. But we still have a lot to talk about, uh, plenty of news about when and how the uh, season may resume. Uh, We've got plenty to talk about uh, with our musings on life in general. Uh, We're going to go back in time to a year of my selection and talk about the best music, movies, TV and footy memories from that particular year, and the rant-off, all that, all those regular segments that uh, we've come to know and love and we've made you listen to just by the by. Time to get into it, Fanny. Let's not muck around. On Footyology News Feed. Okay, well, obviously the major topic, uh, well, just about the only Topic of conversation is uh, COVID nineteen, the horrible toll being wreaked by that virus, and uh, I was just having a look before at the numbers across the globe now, and it is quite distressing and quite surreal. Uh, did you did you course, just on
1: that? Did you hear this morning? Yeah, and it really reminded me of when I was younger, a TV show that I used to love, the goodies that Tim Brook Taylor has passed. Uh, as a result of COVID-19 tragic news.
0: It is tragic news. Uh, that was going to be one of my life hacks, but uh, it doesn't matter. I've got another one up my sleeve. And, and it, you're quite right, though, to bring it up now because, um, you know, there's been other people in the arts and entertainment world who have succumbed to this horrible virus. I'd say at this stage, he's probably the, the best-known one. Um, but, you know, we we I think, sadly, we're going to have to brace ourselves some more because, I mean, we are nearly all political allegiances aside, we weren't that far off losing the Prime Minister of England. Um, You know, he's just been released from hospital and said it could have gone either way. So, you know, it really sort of hits home just how dangerous this thing is. And, um, you know, there's still a lot of uh, ground to cover before we get anywhere near um, getting over it. And then, of course, the recovery in economic uh, circumstances as well. However... Uh, As it applies to football, um, I guess the most important thing finding was uh, Daniel Andrews, Victorian Premier yesterday, basically saying this current state of emergency will be with us until at least May the 11th. Now, that is, what, 20 days before that mooted uh, reconsideration mark of the AFL season starting again May 31. So, I would say with that news, uh, given the fact that we are essentially in a state of emergency until May the 11th, three weeks uh, is a very, very short time. Uh, The AFL, when they announced how the season might look, we're talking about at the very, very minimum a three-week, probably a four-week lead-up. So there's absolutely no way we're going to be starting at the start of June. I would say the absolute earliest, absolute earliest we can look at resuming would be the start of July, and even that would be very, very optimistic. How do you, sir?
1: Yeah, spot on. Good to get some clear direction from the Premier. I think that's helped. And it, I think, fits in with the AFL timeline, don't you feel? That May the 11th, uh, a, uh, a, a statement there will allow the AFL to come back and give a update on that aimed for date when training recommences?
0: this, This is one of the big problems, right? That, you know, it's such a logistical exercise that there's going to have to be a sufficient period between an announcement about whatever that date is and the recommencement of proceedings. But it's just impossible to get that certainty because the goalposts shift not only on a daily basis but on an hourly basis. And that's why... Yeah, you know, just digressing for a moment. There's commentators at the front of the paper saying we need certainty, and they must announce on this date that we. I mean, it's just insane because the best medical experts in the world have absolutely no idea how this is going to look in even a couple of weeks. I mean that you know there are uh, hopeful projections if we continue to flatten the curve, if we continue to do this, this, and this, but that doesn't take into account how people are going to behave, does it? I've got to say, I mean, beyond the football, again, one of my fears is that people will start getting complacent, start reading too much of this speculation about when, you know, when's it going to end, when's it going to end. And I I guess uh, let the safeguards fall away. And then we're just back to square one. I think that is a very real danger. So, Again, in terms of the footy, you know, I, I think the gap between whenever those restrictions are even slightly relaxed and the start of any AFL action has to be at least a month, I would have thought. And that already, given that May 11th date that Andrews has said, leaves us, you know, basically at the start of July.
1: And of course, this is a statement by a state premier, the Premier of Victoria, where AFL is a national competition. So his and Victoria's timeline may be very different to WA, South Australia, Queensland (coughs) and New South Wales where there are teams. So we are looking more for national guidance than for state guidance. And then we have to establish whether or not teams will be sent to playing hubs or whether teams will play out of their normal states. Uh, There's so much water to go under the bridge that... It's impossible. It is really just a, a, a throwing a dart at the wall at the moment.
0: Yep, no, absolutely. And, and, in fact, that was going to be basically my next item on the news agenda is about these hubs, you know, like we're, we're hearing a lot about them, but it's all very general. I did read uh, one story a couple of days ago about how this actually may work and for most Uh, popular suggestion seems to be three different locations of six clubs each. Uh, As smaller groups from each of those clubs as can be mustered and that, that was mentioning figures of 30 players, 20 football department slash medical staff. So that's all the coaches, trainers, docs, physios, um broadcasting personnel obviously this thing is useless unless there are sufficient um personnel to cover the games and get them out on TV given they won't be attended by anyone umpiring people uh you know administrative staff uh so you're talking about in each hub a gathering of about 400 people now here's here's the rub here because there's 400 people in very close proximity to each other yes the bulk of them will be finely tuned young fit athletes but by nature of you know how some of the people work in the industry there's going to be people of our age or older there's going to be people uh only as fit as us or as healthy as us god forbid um you know, so so there's a, a risk straight away. There, it only takes one person being infected in a group of 400 odd people all jammed in together to make that a very problematic exercise indeed. Uh, and obviously, they, they would have to have the most rigorous testing, more rigorous than just for general society. If you're going to have that many people in such close quarters, you know, so it's almost at odds with the whole idea of doing it. And then, as you say. Uh, and a very important point, you've got these different regulations for different states, the need to quarantine if you're crossing particular state borders. Um, it's It's a logistical nightmare, I would have thought. So it's fine and well for people to talk about hubs and islands and this is how we do it. But there are so many logistics that need to be thrashed out if that's going to happen that I would see setting the whole thing up taking at least a month, I would have thought. Hubs
1: have have they been thought through correctly? You still need to play teams that are not in your hub, correct?
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, all that does is take. If you have six teams, that takes account of what five matches per club.
1: Correct, and you've still got to play teams from other hubs. And we've seen that it's travel. We've seen exposure to air air. Um, airline staff, stewards, uh, or, you know, I don't know what they're called now, um, but
0: flight attendants, flight
1: attendants, pilots, uh, people charged with the responsibility of getting people on and off airplanes, they've become infected with COVID nineteen. Once anybody from within a particular hub travels, you're then exposed to the the greater public through contact via travel. I mean, it just, hubs to me don't really seem to answer the question at all. So, ultimately, it's going to be whether or not football can, AFL football, can meet what is going to be the very delicate job of disassembling Stage 3 back through Stage 2 and 1, but they will be different stages 2 and 1 than we travelled to get to stage three, if that makes sense. There's going to be the need for government to be very sensitive in how they dismantle the isolation that we're currently in and the flattening of the curve that's been successful in stage three will be maintained by pretty rigorous means. And I know people are sort of pointing towards, say, horse racing and the fact that that has continued, but by its nature, horse racing does have social distancing sort of inbuilt because of you know just the size of the horses it's easier to maintain it's a contact sport afl football and i just question whether or not the rules that will be surrounding the disassembly or the 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 re-establishing of normal society will allow for a contact sport to be played I think social yeah, I think yeah. I personally think social distancing is going to be maintained until there's a vaccine
0: yeah i I, I think that's likely and and also, which, means no as football, you say,
1: which means no football till there's a vaccine
0: yeah yeah well that that could be a long long way down the track the other point there is that even as we walk back through the various stages um it can't just be a dramatic shift from one to the next, uh, both logistically, but in terms of safety. So, yeah, I mean, it's okay to set up a hub. But as we said, you know, if it's six teams, it's only going to look after five games. Then what happens? You know, do you shift to another hub? Well, that involves more risk with travel, more quarantine, more logistics. So it's fine and well for, you know, and I'm not suggesting for a moment that, AFL people haven't been right across this and and looking at all possibilities and covering the bases. But certainly the the media speculation about it, it's just said, oh, yeah, we're going to set up hubs. Well, yeah, good one. You know, I'm going to fly to the moon. I mean, it's just, you know, there is so much organisation that has to happen, if that is even a possibility, that it sort of leads me to a point, which I will touch on in Life Hacks, um, you know, about the the worth of of going to this trouble.
1: No, that's a really good, um, that's a really good point, Rowan. I, football journalists and and we've got some of our football shows continuing. Those sort of talk fests, Footy Classified on the couch, those sort of programs continue on. And I think the people that present those might be in a bit of a bubble because, yeah, they're presenting a football show and they're looking at everything from the perspective of the AFL and when it's going to start again. To be honest, that needs that that will be low on the priorities of governments, and so it should be. We we need to get people back into the workforce and reestablish an economy that doesn't exist anymore. And football is going to be way down the list, and it needs to be way down the list. So, I hope people aren't who love their football and watching all these programs and. Uh, The NRL have done the same thing. They're really talking from very much their own perspective and they've been chastised now by leaders in New South Wales and Queensland. Guys, footy, it's a a big business. There's no question. But it will have to step in tune with every other business and every other other, uh, social measure taken to make sure that we don't have an outbreak of this COVID-19. And as I said... I had a theory once that, you know, the morale of the nation would be best served by playing football. The morale of the nation would be best served by people getting their jobs back and, you know, getting back to somewhat of the position that we were in before this all started, and that does not include footy.
0: No. And, uh, I mean, the other thing I was going to say there, and you touched on the NRL, was, you know, AFL football is going to be accused of living in a bubble and I do agree on that some people I mean what University nRL coming out and sort of unilaterally announcing a date for assumption and I mean yeah you're right and i, I think it's, it's good sort of demonstration of just how uh you know without mincing words how far some of these people have their heads up their ass you know because they they're they're a, they're a bigger fish to fry. And, uh, you know, we all want this stuff back, but uh, there's no way that it can be expedited at the expense of public safety. And and, um, it's just, you know, some of the stuff being mooted and some of the, yeah, I I guess the evidence that people involved in both these sports, you know, just absolutely live in a complete cocoon. Um, Peter sad, to be honest.
1: Peter Volandi's... Uh, incredibly still holds a, his a senior position with racing in New South Wales as well as a major position with the NRL and I guess emboldened by his successful uh, attack on the home of Group One Racing in Australia, Victoria, which had the Spring Carnival and of course the Melbourne Cup Week at Flemington really as the showcase piece of Australian racing and he took it on and Uh, through the creation of the Everest and increased prize money uh, for major races, New South Wales, Sydney racing became relevant again. I think, you know, emboldened by that successful gambit, he's now taken on COVID-19 with the same bullish approach. But, mate, it's a virus. It's not a racing carnival. You need to show it a little bit more respect than just, this is the date. Very Donald Trump-like, you know, uh, medical advice be damned, I've got a business to get back on its feet. So, Peter, no.
0: Uh, well, in, in defence of him, uh, re the Donald Trump analogy, he at least hasn't been uh, tweeting stuff about how well his press conferences have been rating. I mean, let's, let's not talk about that peanut, but he is just, uh, yeah, he has just gone to a new level during this crisis. Um Anyway, that's, yeah, it's all fairly sobering stuff. I, I guess another thing that popped up during the week, Fanny, and again, sort of makes you think, you know, have these people got enough to think about? But it was uh, Mick Malthouse saying, opining that uh, if and when we do resume this season, that everything we went through in round one should just be thrown out the window. The reason being that it would be too long between that and and the resumption. Um, Excellent I'm not sure idea. What your reaction. Excellent idea. What... Well,
1: Kilsincoln lost.
0: Presume. Oh yeah. Okay. I presume you're being facetious. My immediate. No, reaction
1: was... no. No. Not being facetious. I'd. I'd love it. But you don't get a. You don't get a mulligan for a game of football. And as much as fans of the nine losing teams would love to have that game over, that game, if there is a season to be played, is round one. Is round one. Is round one.
0: Yeah, I I didn't understand his thinking with it because it's not as though an unfair, you know, advantage was created for this team over that team. I mean, everyone will have waited the same length of time between those games. So yes, it's not ideal that there could be a you know two month gap between one game and the next. But so what? It's one less round we'd have to play, mate. Say again,
1: Rowan. Say something sensible, and nobody's going to quote you. You know, Mick Mulhouse has got plenty of traction out of this because it's it's, you know, swimming against the tide. it's it's one man against common sense and that is quotable if you are a football identity with some cachet. If a talkback caller yeah, what, what, if a talkback caller said it on radio, he would have been given short shrift and next caller, please.
0: That's that's not mixed go as a rule though, which is why I found it surprising. I mean he has a big one to sort of need clickbait so it makes me think that's what he genuinely thinks actually isn't that sad that particularly now we have to sort of hear the commentary of someone who is even tenuously involved in the media and the first thing you think is uh do they really believe that or are they just trolling uh and then secondly even if they do really mean that uh whose barrow are they pushing and what particular personal agenda do they have i hate the fact that that sort of uh, environment has developed and it, it means that even though we are part of the media, we become less trusting of our own, um, our own colleagues. You know, it's not, it's not an ideal position, but you you agree that that suggestion about scrapping round one is silly.
1: It's not going to happen because it's unfair, not silly. It just would be blatantly unfair. 18 clubs played round one with the absolute, It <clears throat> was it a practice match? With the full understanding, it was for four points and it will always be the first round of 2020.
0: Okay. Yeah. Uh, final thing I wanted to touch on in news this week. Um, it's been interesting to see how the media has tried to fill the void. Um, there's been some, I mean, there's been some good stuff too. Don't get me wrong. There's been some interesting interviews and whatnot. One of them, uh, Jake Niall Miage, had a chat to Matt Rendell, former Fitzroy star, former. St Kilda assistant coach, former Adelaide Collingwood, or still current Collingwood recruiter, although he, unfortunately, is one of the people who have been stood down while this thing goes on. But a couple of interesting points. The first was he was talking about how Collingwood, uh, like other clubs, um, ignored the claims of Patrick Cripps to a very high draft choice and basically based on the fact that his aerobic testing was pretty ordinary so they ignored the fact that he was an absolute ball magnet and built like a bull and got a bit too caught up in what uh, what numbers he was recording in beep tests etc and overlooked him and Collingwood in that draft of course the draft of 2013 had two Uh, first-round picks. They had uh, pick number uh, six, with which they picked Matthew Sharonberg, and they had pick number 10, with which they picked Nathan Freeman. Of course, both those guys, unfortunately, being proving quite injury-prone, really sad. Nathan Freeman never really got a look in, of course, ended up at St Kilda. Uh, Sharonberg, you know, has shown he can play some pretty good footy, but, uh, boy, he's coming from a long way back now after the run of injuries he's had. I was going to say, though, sort of by necessity, a piece like that sort of points the finger at Collingwood. But, I mean, you've got to remember, Patrick Cripps was taken at number 13 in the draft. Here are the players that went ahead of him. Tom Boyd, Josh Kelly, Jack Billings, Marcus Bontempelli. Okay, so there's one real winner. Cade jasney at Gold Coast. Sharon Berg, James Ashe, um, Luke McDonald, Christian Salem and Nathan Freeman, uh, Dom Sheed and Ben Wenner. So in that entire list, you know, for one reason or another, I mean, this is the vagaries of the draft and player development, but in that entire dozen players, um, you know, there's been quite a few who either are okay, have one of them out of the game already, the number one draft pick, no less, uh, a couple of guys with major injury issues, and one of the dozen who really has measured up to Patrick Cripps, oh Dom Shee you know, did happen to win a grand final off his own boot, but
1: Josh yeah, Kelly's yeah, a pretty, Josh I'm, Kelly's a good player.
0: Oh, sorry, sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah I, I have looked Josh Kelly, but I mean, it, I, I just find those sort of exercises a bit unfair on recruiters, really, because it's sort of it sort of makes it seem like obvious that. Everyone should have seen what Patrick Cripps would become and he's another yet another example that in a lot of ways he got no idea. It's there's a whole lot of water to go under the bridge first.
1: Well, that that's mad making that sort of stuff. Picking the eyes out of drafts with twenty twenty the twenty twenty vision that comes with hindsight. How about the year James Heard got taken at ninety on? Does that mean that you know eighty Whatever, however, many previous choices were inept, and and all those people involved had no idea what was going on.
0: What about uh Brett Heady and Dean Kemp at 102, whatever it was? Yeah, they, yeah. Mean, yeah, no, they, they it.
1: were salted away, my friend.
0: The other, the other um thing out of this interview that I took note of and I thought of you straight away actually was uh Matt Rendell's contention that had Grant Thomas remained St Kilda coach. St Kilda would have won two, if not three, premierships. What
1: do you think of that? Yeah, look, he was obviously closely aligned with Grant. That's not impossible. There are so many things that almost happened for St Kilda that didn't happen. One misconception about Grant Thomas, that I'm sure Matt Randell would back up. In fact, I've heard him talk about it privately. There was a belief that Grant Thomas had no respect for Ruckman, and St Kilda Kilda had a paucity of Ruckman under Grant Thomas of inequality, and that's where they fell short in 2004-2005. St Kilda went within an absolute whisker of signing uh, Big Dean Cox from the West Coast Eagles. Had Mm. had Michael Gardner not got a late-season injury, I can't remember, was it 2003 or thereabouts, West Coast were going to clear Dean Cox to St Kilda.
0: Yeah, yeah. Like they uh,
1: they required him, so
0: it's sliding doors there. Yeah, it is. It is sliding doors, and it's you know in some way. I I guess people love pondering hypotheticals, but I mean, yeah. I I mean, my view was Thomas was probably a bit stiff to get pushed out on the back of a, a first week finals exit after two yeah he was twice going very, very close, but I'll, he's give, not you, I'll the first give you something against that situation.
1: I'll give you something uh, against Grant Thomas, and I personally believe he was a very good coach for his times and put belief into a team that and a club that didn't have that self-belief. And I think he was very worthwhile as a coach. and I like him mm-hmm. as a person. He was though fairly uh, very autocratic. And yeah. he became obsessed with he had really only seen not a great deal of this player, but had seen him in a game I think against Essendon, an all star game that they used to have between Indigenous the Indigenous team in Essendon prior to the season. And he yep. was desperate to get um Raff Clark to the club. Yeah. And then recruiting man, John Beveridge, did not want to take Raff Clark. And he had a player that he specifically wanted to take in that draft that Raf Clark was taken in and overruled by the coach who had very little knowledge of the issue other than uh, knowing that he had Zav, at the, his brother at the club, and had seen him play in a highlights package, really, and overruled yeah. the signing of Bo Waters. Now, you know, Bo Waters, pretty tough capable footballer, premiership player. And I think any team would love to have had a Bo Waters in their side. It's funny because they played a similar position most of their careers, Raph Clark and Bo Waters, very different footballers. And I think most fans would take Bo Waters over Raph Clark.
0: Yeah. Oh, look, absolutely. I mean, there are so many stories like that. Also, I, I think that even now um, there's less of that happening. I mean, you, you, you immediately reminded me of, uh, this is back in about, 1990, I think, at a pre-season draft where um, Kevin Sheedy famously jumped up before Noel Jenkins, Essendon's recruiting man, had a chance to say anything and yell about, um, uh, was it uh, John Fitch, you know, who'd been playing over in Adelaide, yep. um, and <laughs> Juddy wasn't even aware he was on the radar, you know, so stuff like that used to happen a bit, I think at Fortunately, it doesn't happen now. Anyway, they are the—I um, guess—they are true sliding doors moments, and uh, life, let alone footy, is full of them. All right, that's enough news. We covered a fair bit of ground there, so given that there's no actual footy going on. I think we did quite well. But finally it's time to uh, uh, broaden the horizons a little bit as we muse on on life and and love and and loss and other words that uh, start with L, I'll come up with a list of them next week as uh, we get into Life Hacks. Life Hacks, building a better world. All right, well, uh, strange days indeed. So I guess that makes Life Hacks uh, potentially strange too, as we all embrace uh, a different way of living and uh, rediscovering various things. I'm one of which I'm going to allude to in my rant, Finey. But uh, I guess uh, a couple of things that I thought were noteworthy. Well, one of them, uh, um, very sadly, uh, has just happened recently and we touched on it at the top of the show, and that is the um, sad passing of English comedian Tim Brooke Taylor uh, of the goodies fame. And uh, I'll tell you what, finally, it so the news came through, it was quite late last night, I think it was around, 11 o'clock or something and I saw the story and I I tweeted something about it and I said oh well anyone around my age you know would have known about the goodies and watched a lot of it as part of their childhood TV diet um sad loss you know uh, RIP but then I became aware just how many people um not only knew about the goodies but watched it liked it and, and uh, were really saddened by this loss. And then all these stories came through about what a lovely man he was and people recounting various experiences with him and but younger age groups as well. Uh, so clearly the goodies had a, a resonance with younger generations that I was unaware of. Um, and you and I, you know, we grew up with that stuff. There was Monty Python, there was the goodies. And, you know, they did some hilarious stuff, you know. I mean, the one... It always sticks in my head, and I'm sure a lot of people, for different reasons now, but it's the episode where they breed Rolf Harris's in captivity. Uh, there was the one about the giant kitten. I think it was called Kitten Kong. Uh, there was the the uh, one about Ecky Thump, the uh, Lancashire Lancashire martial arts that Bill Hoddy um, specializes in, uh, that's where they the, built each. That's the They built each other. St- Felt each other senseless with black puddings. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, they did, I mean, and for its time too, it was, you know, it was very much in the vein of Monty Python, I reckon, pretty wacky and out there. And and you used to think, well, how do they come up with these ideas? But uh, yeah, it was very, very good. And he and Graham Garden and Bill Oddie were an essential part of anyone's comedic viewing diet. So, unfortunately, Tim has uh, succumbed to the coronavirus. And, you know, there's been other musicians and, um, you know, uh, arts and entertainment types who have already passed away as a result of this. And sadly, I don't think he's going to be the last, um, you know, sort of much-loved name that we're going to be bidding a sad farewell to. It's just, it's the human side of it, I suppose. Uh, Just actually, just to extend that a bit, the other human side of this, is this constant um, parade I'm seeing on Twitter of of videos filmed by healthcare workers at the end of their tether, uh, and really, really upset um, just by what they're witnessing firsthand. And I guess, you know, they're pleased to other people to take this seriously because this is what I'm dealing with on a daily basis. There was another one from, I think, uh, an American nurse Last night, she was just talking about, you know, she's sick of walking into a ward and someone else is dead. Um, You know, the numbers of people that this is ploughing through. And, um, you know, it's it's quite heart-wrenching stuff. And once again, makes you realise who the true heroes in our society are. And they are the emergency workers and they are the healthcare workers and they are the scientists. And they're all the people in those sort of professions that we ritually take for granted because they're not seen as glamorous but boy has it given us a new appreciation of of the work they do
1: here here just on the goodies i I sort of found them when i first came across them a bit silly and i think they grew on me by saturation bombing it because they were on five nights a week and from memory, yeah. they were on when the commercial channels had their news, so any self-respecting kid didn't want to watch the news, obviously. <laughs> we wanted to watch something other than the news. And I, I remember one episode that just really, one moment that really tickled my fancy was, do you remember the show down at the OK Rooms?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: And that's where, that's where um, Graham Garden put on his geologist's hat. And he said, if I know anything about... A rock formations and afternoon tea because they'd already discovered scones or scones as the argument went and jam and then he stuck his pickaxe into the ground. If I know anything about geology and afternoon teas where there's scones and jam there has to be slams his pickaxe into the dirt and he gets a geyser of cream. <laughs>
0: yeah, I, don't yeah, I do remember that. Uh, uh, the OKT okay rooms, yeah, I do remember that. All right, uh, you're up.
1: Okay, so my first... Heck, is COVID-19 related and obviously many of us all of us I think are watching a lot of TV as a result of being housebound and if you do have cable TV or, or pay TV probably as it is now uh, Foxtel in particular you've and, and other services as well you get the Discovery Channel and I've got to say I saw a because I, I was taken aback as I flick through upcoming programs, that there was already a documentary on discovery about COVID-19. And this this documentary has been put together by the Chinese government and the Chinese health authority. And it is the, if you want to get an insight, a sort of a, a window into Chinese paranoia, Chinese selective censoring, Chinese documentation and the desperate need for a country like China to maintain or create an impression of themselves that is favourable with the rest of the world, then you've got to catch this. It is, and I I really do get a sense that they must have paid the Discovery Channel to put this on. This is a version of COVID-19, its spread, its handling, and the future, the world future, that paints China as heroes. It overlooks... How is that? Well, it it describes it as a a worldwide pandemic and certainly doesn't lay the blame of its spread stemming from an inability to close Wuhan down or an inability for the Chinese government for quite a while to concede that it was caught that it was transferred from person to person. They lived in a world of denial where they said it was only transferable from um, animals, particularly ones consumed at wet markets, uh, to human beings. And that delay, unfortunately, coincided with the Chinese New Year and saw five million people leave the epicentre, which was Wuhan. But this documentary completely overlooks that. It does the traditional... Um, quotes from doctors, many of them Chinese, but two, one Australian, two females, one English woman, one Australian woman, who are effusive in their praise of Chinese handling. It goes on to explain, and and it does it. It has a timeline, so it goes like um, January thirteenth, February fourteenth, and when a new date is presented, all they, the statistics they give is the amount of people that have recovered in China from. COVID-19. No death toll. That is mentioned at the very end of the program once. But the claim is that the rest of the world now is getting consultation and Chinese doctors are travelling around the globe to help stem the epidemic and the flattening of the curve in Italy is a direct result of Chinese intervention. The documentary also claims that Chinese are using clear stock imagery from from laboratories that China is very close to a vaccine to prevent people getting it in the first place and also medicine to treat it once people get it. But they claim that Chinese herbal medicine combined with a Chinese centuries-old breathing method has meant that the death rate in China is the lowest in the world. Now, uh, as I say, we have become used to places, certain countries misrepresenting facts to feather their own bed. But the fact that the Discovery Channel played this documentary uh, begs the question whether it was a financial decision or just a misguided uh, management decision, because this is an infomercial clearly created very quickly and not so slickly, to be honest, by the Chinese government to deflect attention and deflect the fingers that are being pointed at the Chinese government for what has become a pandemic that really should have been, as tragic as it would have been, a Chinese epidemic.
0: No, very interesting stuff. Although I've got to say it sort of makes me smile a bit because Discovery Channel is on Foxtel, right? Yep. Um, Sky News on Foxtel. So you heard of Sky News? Oh, yeah. Like that's, the... that's that's a lot closer to home than Wuhan yeah. and China. I'll tell you what, the degree of propaganda that goes out on that, that crap is uh, uh, rivals anything the Chinese put out. No, it's a, it's a, a fair point. I, I, you made me think of, uh, I remember when SBS, not long after SBS started, and my dad, being a film critic, you know, used to watch a lot of foreign movies. And I remember one night sitting down with him to watch this um Chinese movie and the very first lines in the movie which came up on subtitles obviously was this uh, young woman looking earnestly at, at the camera saying the people of China are happy now the gang of four have been arrested
1: <laughs> well, I'll, I'll give you a, I'll give you a personal insight into Chinese the Chinese obsession with their own image as portrayed not only to the rest of the world but to themselves. Many years ago in another life, I worked for an automotive company and we travelled, I and the boss travelled throughout China visiting large factories that helped manufacture four-wheel drive suspension for our company or were pitching for the business. And we ended up on an internal flight and you know, before the we we were travelling with a translator. Do you know before the before a flight, generally a member of the flight crew stands up and goes through the safety procedures. Yes. Well, a member of the flight crew stood up, and went obviously in Chinese, in Mandarin, on a on a five minute um, monologue, and it was respectfully our translator listened to it and then translated or preceded it afterwards and he started speaking I said oh you know was it about you know what to do in the case of emergency and he said no 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 what happens before every flight is th- they stand up and say that the People's Republic of China has the safest airplanes in the world the best airplanes in the world that you are in the safest of hands because the Chinese government's technology means that there is less chance of crashing on a Chinese plane than any other plane on the planet. By the way, that is so not true. And it was a basically um, five-minute party-created spiel about the brilliance of Chinese aerospace. And not one Uh, word about what to do in case of an emergency.
0: Well, no-one on our flights listens to that either. (laughs) Yeah, no. Okay. All right, let's get on with it. Uh, My next one. Now, I see and raise your documentary uh, because my last two are, in fact, about documentaries. I've watched two absolute rippers over the past week finally. The first one, uh, both on Netflix. Uh, The first one, and I tweeted something about this and got a huge response. So clearly it's resonated with a lot of people. But if you haven't seen it and you're a fan of the, a fan of the round ball game, I cannot recommend highly enough uh, a series called. And the first season was on uh, a fair while ago now, probably a year ago. And this is the second season, a documentary called Sunderland Till I Die. And it follows the travails, and that is definitely the right word to use in this case, of Sunderland AFC, uh, formerly of the Premier League. And so the first season followed them uh, when they went down from the Premier League to the Championship. And uh, I guess the plan initially was, oh, you know, they'll have a pretty good year and go back up or at least be in contention. Well, no, that didn't happen because they had such a poor season that they got relegated from the Championship to League One. And um, remarkable when you think about it. And uh Season two is just every bit as good. It's a bit shorter. There's six parts of it. But it, like all those great sporting docos, it takes you inside the club, not just the playing side of things, but um, you're meeting a lot with and um, seeing a lot of the owners. Um, uh, Stuart, uh, I've forgotten his surname, but Stuart, the owner, and his sort of right-hand marketing man, Charlie, is a bit of a not a spiv, but he's a bit of a slick sort of marketing type. Um, you see, you know, the inner workings of the club. Um, there are in depth interviews with the, the players, the uh, manager, a guy called Jack Ross, for whom you need subtitles, even though he's Scottish. Um, it, it's uh, You would love it, finally. You've got to watch it. But any, anyone that has even a passing interest in soccer, um, particularly English soccer, you must watch this because it's so well done. Uh, also, the perspective it gives you on the fans, you know, just what you know. We think AFL footy and Australian footy is important to us. The part that soccer plays in the lives of a lot of these people, and and without cultural stereotyping, a lot of these people aren't, um, you know, they're, they're not in the best economic circumstances uh, or in the highest socio-economic groups. So. And the football club is just so important to them. So it follows them as well. And um, if you, well, it's easy to look up what happened to them in this particular season they're documenting, which is last season, 2018 19. Uh, but it's pretty dramatic stuff. And uh, each episode goes from uh, anywhere from about 45 minutes to 50 odd minutes. But it's absolutely riveting stuff and uh, just terrific. And yeah, a sports documentary. Some sports do them better than others, but uh, soccer is a sport that does it particularly well. And this is a fantastic doco, Sunderland Till I Die on Netflix. Absolutely watch it if you have any interest at all in the round ball game. That's great. That's a great tip.
1: This time next week, I'll be able to give you my appraisal briefly on it because I'm. You've made a great case. I'm going to stay on Netflix, mate. There's a. Quite a few. Netflix is a fantastic service, isn't it? They go and produce their own television, and some of it is. Yeah, and it's a hell
0: of a a hell of a lot cheaper than Foxtel as well.
1: So this program started on March the twenty-sixth worldwide, and it's been shown in Australia. You can, I don't know how you do it, but I've been you're able to watch the whole series straight away, the whole the, the entire program. I think it's a four part. Series, and it's really taken off around the world. In fact, uh, in a short time in Australia, it's sort of number four or number five on Netflix, and very.
0: This is this is not Tiger King, is
1: it? No, no, I've seen Tiger King, and ah, okay, yeah, you know, Tiger King's fascinating. It's amazing, and it's uh, you know why white trash shouldn't be given tigers, I guess. But this is a series a. Uh, uh, it's a program called unorthodox and it's a look and a brilliant look. And I'm telling you with my, even though I'm Jewish, I have not a great deal of insight into this community, though I do have a small insight into this community through uh, a distant family member who um, joined this community at the age of 16 or 17. And that is, broadly called the Hasidic community. And because there is a presence in Melbourne, I think a lot of Melbournians would recognise um, these ultra-Orthodox Jews who wear particular garb. You might see them on holidays, high holidays, or Saturdays, the Sabbath walking in groups. They have the side curls, or payot, that make them very identifiable, the men bearded with these side curls. Uh, You may not know this, but all the women wear wigs. The Men have these large, yeah. All the women's married women I didn't know that. Married women. I, I can't,
0: Look, can I just throw in here? Yep. I mean, the, the literally the eyes uh, now, maybe it isn't true, but I uh, look 95% of Hasidic Jews that I've seen in Melbourne, I see in a you know two kilometre long stretch of Balaclava Road.
1: They live in Ripon Lee. That is exactly what their life is. Okay. That is totally what. Their existence is it it is it close quarters. This story is based on a book by uh, by Deborah Feldman, who left the very tight these Hasidic communities. Hasidic is a broader term. There actually are small groups, or or um, they they they're sort of governed by different original leaderships. So there are small sects within or there are sects within Hasidic Jews. And the largest of them is called Satmar, and it's based on the teachings of a rabbi who survived the Holocaust from Hungary. And they're quite famously anti-Zionist. Whilst they believe in living in the Holy Land, they don't believe in the State of Israel because they believe that should only be created by the return of the Messiah. And they've been courted by Iran and you know Hezbollah and whatever, and they share the stage with them sometimes, decrying the destruction of the State of Israel. They've got a large community in New York, or just outside New York, and her real-life story has been turned into a four-part series explaining how she left this community, how difficult... It also has gives an insight into life in this very, very, um, very closed community not much is known about their practices and the very accurate portrayal of a wedding and certain elements within this community has resonated around the world the the lead character is a is a a, based on deborah feldman's character is called esther and is so brilliantly acted by uh, an israeli actress who this movie by the this program by the way is predominantly in Yiddish, which is, it's a language only kept alive by Hasidic Jews, but it was the language of European Jewry. It's a morphing of Hebrew, German, and now English. It's very interesting to hear modern Yiddish with many English words in it. It's an incredible insight, very accurate, and brilliant acting, and the story is also quite captivating. Unorthodox, it's a must if you've got Netflix.
0: All right, I'll, I'm marking it down. Uh, I'd be very, just quickly, because we've got to get on with it, I'd be very interested to know what percentage of the uh, population now uses Netflix. Because I mean, everyone potentially has access to Netflix, but it just, I'd be amazed if the, the take up rate wasn't, I don't know, at least sort of 60, 70% of houses with, um, well, you don't even need a TV, do you? You need a computer screen. Um, gee, it's good. Yeah, the quality programming on it it's is right. so good. Right. And if if I if I worked for uh, Fox for Foxtel, I would be absolutely crapping my pants to be honest, because their subscriptions are going through the floor. We got no live sport at the moment, and Netflix and Stan and <clears throat> Amazon Prime and these streaming services are coming up with quality programming. To wit, can, I, could segue
1: on, in. can you give me two minutes?
0: Uh, no, because this segment's gone way over time.
1: Oh, it's worth it,
0: mate. And I just, well, I just did a segue into my last life hack. Okay, go on. Because
1: I, to- I told you I had a slight insight through a family member. How's this for an amazing story? My, mother's, my mother came out of the Holocaust and had only one living relative, but her mother, survive. And it was her first cousin. His name was Julian Fogelgarn. And he had three children, two daughters and a son. His son, Leslie, I knew growing up, he was a few years older than me, mad Richmond supporter, actually took me to a Richmond game. and He was a member of the cheer squad and I feared for my life as a 10-year-old. At the age of 15, he attended a camp with um, an (coughs) outreach this camp was put together by American Hasidic Jews called Habad, and he was taken by it. And by the time he was nineteen, had joined that community and married. Now, his father, my mother's cousin Julian Fogelgarn, had always said to my mother that his his great fear is he's got one son. He was the last. He's the last surviving Gun. and his fear was that. If his son married out because it looked like he was going to for many years or not have any boys, it would be the end of the name Fogelgarn. Uh, these Jewish communities have large families. Leslie's got 11 children and they're all boys.
0: That's so pretty, uh, well, it's a cricket term.
1: There's a lot of Fogelgarns.
0: Yeah, so the, okay. The well, name, the name will live on. on. All right. Um, Now, I've forgotten what my segue was now. It was about the quality of streaming services, and I mentioned Amazon Prime. I did that deliberately because uh, I hadn't sort of used Amazon Prime until, and I'm sure a lot of people have done the same thing. Uh, I'd heard so much good stuff about the test, uh, the insider doco about the Australian cricket team, Um, that I thought, well, I have to watch this. And uh, anyone who hasn't seen it and think, I don't want to pay for another streaming service, there is a 30-day free trial with Amazon Prime. So uh, I'm watching it now, not having committed a red cent to them. Um, Not saying I won't down the track, but I probably won't. But I've watched uh, two-thirds now of the test. There's... I can't watch two-thirds because there's eight episodes I've watched. Um I've watched half, actually, I've watched four. Uh it's fantastic funny There's another one that has to be on your must watch list. Uh, I don't know if people have seen there was a trailer that was sort of doing the rounds on cricket shows and whatever. Jesus, good. Um it's not I, I thought when I heard it initially I'd have been fairly sanitized because, you know, it's sort of done with the Cricket Australia's backing and approval and whatever, but You know, it really is warts and all. You see some very uncomfortable moments in team meetings and uh, coaches' meetings and whatever. It starts with Justin Langer's appointment as coach. So in, what, May 2018. Um, Goes through, you know, their initial forays. They had a a one-day tournament in England. I barely remembered that, actually, where we got absolutely whitewashed 5-0 and smashed Um, it has our tour to, who do we play? Pakistan, two tests against Pakistan. Then we came home and played India. Very challenging series, tough series, that one. Uh, That's about where I'm at the end of that domestic summer, which finished up with two good wins over Sri Lanka. Um, And the good stuff yet to come, the ashes, uh, the holding of the ashes in England. But Uh, Just, it's, you know, extensive interviews with Langer, the coaching staff, the players though, there's, you know, really good interviews with the players. Uh, It cuts back and forth from those interviews as required. So when the storyline is, for example, uh, you know, Manus Labashain coming into the team or Travis Head or someone, it goes to the interviews with them. Um, It's got great vision, you know, real close-up vision of stuff that happened on the field. But the inside stuff, inside the dressing rooms particularly, Uh, I don't think we've seen much cricket stuff like that before. I mean, cricket's done good docos too, but not a lot of that fly-on-the-wall stuff. And uh, it's fantastic. It is really, really gripping. And again, if you're any sort of cricket fan, um, you've got to watch the test. Uh, It's on Amazon Prime, eight episodes. You can watch it free as long as you watch it within a month. Uh, Well worth the effort. Um, I love documentaries. I, I think I, I don't watch that many movies anymore. I think I tend to – 90% of my viewing diet these days is docos, and, and that's why, because they're just being made with such quality now. So get into that one too, Fanny. I def- All right, your last one. I
1: definitely will because, again, you sell it well, and that insight, that fly-on-the-wall raw stuff in the dressing room will be compelling. But I don't like the way it's been sold, you know, to the public via the the ads for it. Because I don't, I don't agree with that dialogue. They sort of it's sold as
0: Australian. I can't remember what the ads were.
1: Well, it it, it has Malcolm Turnbull. It, it sort of shows it. It's, the sell is that the Australian Australian cricket was at an all time low after Sandpaper Gate, and yeah, and this is the story of its of its um rebirthing and ending as the ad proclaims you know we all know the story the ultimate you know the 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 great finish the the fairy tale ending it's not a fairy tale ending yeah they retained the mm. ashes they drew the series they had a terrible final test it's not like they went out and won the world series or won the fa cup uh, it doesn't quite resonate with me that australian cricket was at an all-time low which i don't agree with anyhow but uh, okay if you want to create that story then you can I guess but the resurrection didn't result in Australia ending up on top of the world they didn't win the World Cup in one day cricket and they drew a series in England that was a very good effort don't get me wrong but had a very very disappointing final test
0: no that's true and I, I haven't got that far yet so I haven't seen how it's presented it doesn't it certainly doesn't dwell on sandpaper gate too much I should actually you may be real. Uh, Remember this, though. There is part of the commentary. There are interviews with uh, Peter Lawler, great cricket juno from the Australian, and Jared Waitley. Um, so I don't know what your reaction to that is, but uh, there's know, plenty of he, from Jared as well.
1: Yeah, but he's has the right gravitas, and I'm sure for the doctor oh, came, yeah, yeah, came across came uh, across him as they wanted.
0: It's pretty earnest. Yeah, um, there you go. That's, that's pretty earnest. All right, your last one.
1: Okay, my last one. Again, with time on my hands, I find myself heading – sort of I get on the internet, I start looking up things, and I go down a rabbit hole. Do you do that ever? You just
0: – I do that every night.
1: Yeah, the, I go where the search engine takes me, and I don't know, I end up in places where I didn't intend to be when I started, but you can have very rewarding experiences.
0: Well, you do do that literally, not just metaphorically. Yeah,
1: (laughs) thanks. So I think that there is an Australian that is not duly recognised, that we are living in the times, we are living in times of a, a great Australian, and it was backed up because I ended up on these lists of best actors and actresses in the world. Do you know who I'm talking about?
0: Uh, Well, it's pretty wide field. Okay, uh, Chris Hemsworth. Um, no, 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 no. This Judy is... Davis. No, no, mate, Judy Davis. I... Kate Blanchett.
1: Correct. Kate Blanchett. Oh, really? Kate Blanchett.
0: Okay. <laughs> appears. I just pulled that out. Yeah. <laughs>
1: appears over and over on respected sites as being in the top ten actresses of all time. Greatest actresses really? of all time. Okay. One list, which, has, which is the 25 greatest Hollywood actresses alive today and then has the subheading, and you'll be surprised that Meryl Streep is at number one, has Kate Blanchett as the number one living actress on the planet today. But Fair over income. and over, there's not a list where she's not in the top ten. And this means wow. okay. this means excluding some of the great names... Of, of film, you know, because you can't have them all in the top ten. But I'm talking about magnificent actresses like Helen Mirren, uh, the great American actresses. I'll tell you who are the consistents in the top ten. Uh, Kate Blanchett, Meryl Streep and Catherine Hepburn. And beyond mm. that, everything is up for grabs. It's company.
0: It's a white company. A, a,
1: and she's an Aussie, an Aussie who had... Mm has had to work incredibly hard. And the reason I mention it now is her star is just going to rise and rise because we're about to be exposed to a much looked forward to miniseries coming out of America called Mrs. America dealing with dealing with the rights movement for women throughout the sixties as women, you know, unshackled themselves from the kitchen and join the workforce and look for equality, and she is the star of that. She is never questioned for her work, and probably the greatest praise was one site that said, know this of Kate Blanchett. If she is in a movie, that movie will be elevated because of her presence. Whether a small independent production or a blockbuster, whatever was intended by the writers and the producers will be exceeded by her performance.
0: Here, here! No greater praise hath the arts and entertainment world. No, no, very, very good call. Um, all right, there is enough of life hacks for this week. Uh, what do you say, Finey? Uh We jump in the time machine and go back a few decades. Video
1: the radio star.
0: Video Vinyl the radio and video, star. pressing rewind on our favourite music, movies, and TV. Well, it's that time of the week again. We step back in time and revisit a particular year, the best uh, music, movies, TV and old footy memories from that particular year. My choice this week finally and I've decided to step back just a touch over four decades to 1979. We were both in year nine. We were both about to firmly enter our adolescence Um that that year hold any particular memories for you
1: oh yes you know I, the young boy I, it was around then my attention turned to one thing and one thing only
0: uh yes probably ditto it certainly turned that year away from my schoolwork yeah. and um, uh fortunately i managed to get back on track relatively quickly however it, um, it was the
1: year my my mother found my stash of pornos as well
0: Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. No, I, I got, I, no, no, let's not go there. I inherited a huge stash of porn when I was in year seven, actually. I was only 12. Yeah. Uh, it was a pile of, ma- I was walking home one day from school with this mate of mine, and it was outside like a, an old folks' home, and there was this huge stash of porn. I had Max left out the front, <laughs> and he found them. He found them, so he took them home. Anyway, he turned up to school very red-faced the next day and, and he'd already been busted, so he was going to throw him out. And I said, I'll have them. Uh, and I had fairly liberal-minded parents, so I was allowed to keep them. Um, so it was, it was quite, a, quite a discovery. All right, uh, music. Um, uh, big year for music. Some massive albums came out in 1979, among others, uh, London Calling from The Clash. Uh, Pink Forwards, The Wall, huge seller, that one. Uh, Super Tramp, Breakfast in America. Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, Damn the Torpedoes, which had Refugee on it. That was a pretty massive hit. And a favourite of mine, finally, I flogged this record at the time, The Police Regatta de Blanc, which, of course, had Message in a Bottle. So you
1: you had porno magazines, but but you were flogging police record.
0: Interesting. I was flogging the police, yes So <laughs> a Poor choice of words there Also uh, another record I thought was great in 79 The Cars, Candy O uh, Which had Let's Go on it But uh, no contest in terms of my favourite album out of 1979 Finding, And in fact so favourite That uh, in my top 20 albums countdown on Twitter Which has been going the last couple of weeks And thanks to anyone who gave me some Decent feedback on it. it. was a lot of fun. My number four album of all time, as seen on that top 20 albums, Countdown finally came out in 1979. And I reckon a lot of people know already what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the mighty ACDC and their mightiest release, Highway to Hell. What an album, finally Just a winner from start to finish. Here's the track listing. Highway to Hell, Girls Got Rhythm. Walk All Over You, my equal favourite Akadaka song, Touch Too Much, Beating Around the Bush, Shot Down in Flames, Another Ripper, Get It Hot, and my other equal favourite Akadaka song, If You Want Blood, Love Hungry Man, and Night Prowler. Of course, finishing uh, the last track, Night Prowler, finishing with the final words ever spoken by Bon Scott on record, signing off with the catch cry from Mork and Mindy, popular at the time, Shazbat, Nanu Nanu. Uh, it's a great album. Uh, Mutt Lang was the producer on this, uh, first Akadaka album that hadn't been produced by uh, Vander and Young. And, uh, uh, look, they did a good enough job, but he just gave them a, a little bit more polish. And it's tight, tight as a drum. The riffing between Angus and Malcolm Young is just a – well, it is music to your ears. Uh, and the whole thing sounds fantastic. They would, Look, Power Age, I love Power Age too, which came out the year before. And I love, love Back in Black, my first album, Bond, didn't sing on. But um, Highway to Hell is for me the pinnacle of ACDC. Uh, just a magnificent album. If you haven't heard it because you've got some sort of prejudice about AC/DC being bogan rock or whatever, do yourself a favour, actually have a listen to it. It Rocks, and it rocks hard, and it's absolutely bloody terrific. So that's my pick of 1979, Highway to Hell from the mighty ACDC. You're did, up.
1: Did you really say do yourself a favour?
0: I did. I say that all the time, <laughs> I, and not, not even not even con- self-consciously. And it's trust me, it's the only way I want to be compared to Molly Mildred. That's okay. All I, right.
1: I, I, I compare myself to him as a loyal Saints fan. There you go. All right, my pick is an album, and I know that you – well, I don't know if anybody else knows this, but I can tell our podcast listeners that Rowan really wants me to do albums, not singles. He believes – I'm I'm a purist. Why do you you want me to do albums?
0: Um, Well, because A, it gives us more to talk about, but B, uh, you know, because for every Highway to Hell uh, masterpiece – 45 minutes in listening time and a lot of months and months of work goes into it. For every album, there is a uh, disposable one-off bit of trash like My Sharona from The Knack.
1: 1979. Actually,
0: their album, their album did come out um, That year as well, Get The Knack. Uh, you know what I mean? Look, I just think albums are a real, I don't know, and the concept of the album is sort of disappearing, so I want to preserve it as best we can. Anyway, I prefer, if you can do an album, I prefer you to do an album.
1: Okay, so if I'm being honest, any album that I've presented from prior to 1979 is not an album I loved at the time. It's maybe a a group that I loved at the time or music that I loved, and I have come to look at the album or since get the album or look at the listings on the album and realise that that's a very strong album. But this this is actually the first album it was a cassette, actually, that I had consumed, loved. I had the sort of elitist tastes of not just loving the hits, but other tracks on the album. And I guess, again, it it sings to my broad church of musical tastes because, you know, we've had classical music, country and Western music, Rammstein for industrial German thrash. Johnny, yeah, it's pretty broad, isn't it?
0: Well, he said it's certainly broader than mine.
1: I can tell you, in 1979, I loved Scar music. Uh, the specials, okay, yep. the specials were big then. The Selector, Bad Manners would come a little bit later, who I really enjoyed, but the granddaddy of them all was the very, very Scar-based early days of Madness, and hmm. and their album One Step Beyond was for me a revelation. I remember lying in my bed with a Walkman listening to One Step Beyond over and over. And it's an instrumental hit. You know, it's full of trumpet and powerful. Yeah. And so that was the the title track. Uh, no lyrics there. Another single that came off the album was Night Boat to Cairo, which was a fantastic song.
0: I don't think I know that.
1: Um, yeah, it's With like, our house on it? No, no. That's later. That That's a very different oh, okay. form of madness. Ma- you know, that's
0: more commercial Very, madness.
1: very commercial. This was Scar, okay. raw Scar. They have a great version of Swan Lake in it. Again, an instrumental <laughs> hit. Um, yeah. And I don't have the track listings in front of me, but just a number of really traditional, fun, deeply, deeply sort of um, – reggae connected scars, a, a particular type of music that it's hard to describe or quantify but uh, it's it's jaunty it's hoppy it's quick but it's also mm. deeply instrumental so there's you know mm. trumpets and, and mainly the use of different instruments so no bass not we're not talking guitar work we're talking drums and trumpets and clarinets and those sort of things
0: there's yeah. a lot of a lot of br- a lot of brass, brass in it. yeah, yeah.
1: And so, for me, it's the first album that I consumed as an album and absolutely loved. Uh, oh, there's, no, there's no my, very good. My, my friend George, uh, just a whole lot of different tracks on it.
0: I, I've got to admit, I've never been into Scar. I don't, I don't dislike it, but it's just. Um, but I, I remember that, you know, in Australia, it was pretty big from about sort of seventy nine to eighty two ish, wasn't yep. it? Yeah, well – One track, of, one, one. Scar song I've really come to appreciate only in recent years was that track by, um, pretty sure it was the Specials, uh, Ghost Town. Yeah. yeah. And, I've, yeah, I've heard it used in um, docos and things, and it's really sort of tied up with that whole Thatcher England, isn't it? You know, yeah. that sort of the coal miners' strike and, you know, sort of industrial unrest and the tearing down of social... Institutions, and uh, you know, anytime I sort of read or hear about that, I've got that ghost down by the specials going through my head, so yeah, yeah it's quite sort of atmospheric, a lot of it, really, isn't it?
1: Yeah, um, all right, b- bad. Just if somebody wants to hear a fun tr- scar track, listen to Lip Up Fatty by Bad Manners, that's a gr- Lip really good Lip tra- Up
0: Fatty, yeah, okay, all right, no, interesting selection, all right, let's talk movies. Um, some huge movies of 1979 included apocalypse now alien uh being there peter sellers uh quite like that the china syndrome uh manhattan woody allen 10 with Bo derrick speaking about um lusty adolescent boys that was a big one for them um i've gone for a movie which funnily enough funny when when i've never forgotten this movie i went to the uh, opening this movie with my dad, who was a, a film critic. I think I've mentioned that on this show. Um, and for a long time, I've sort of thought, oh, this was a, you know, a sort of nice little, little movie that, you know, not many people would know about. And then when I was sort of researching it last night, I, I, I didn't know this, but it was nominated for an Oscar in four different categories. Um, and actually won uh, the Oscar for Best Original Screenplay. Uh, it's a fantastic movie. It's uh, directed by Peter Yates, and it is called Breaking Away. Do you know that, or have you heard of that movie?
1: No. Is that? It's not okay. a cycling movie, is it? Yes, it is. I've seen it. Then, then I do yeah. know
0: it. It's, 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 well, it's not just a cycling movie. It's about, it's, okay, it's about four kids growing up in Bloomington, Indiana. They've just finished high school um, and they're not quite sure what they're going to do with their lives. Um, the actors, uh, Dennis Christopher, who plays the main character, Dave, who is a bit of a dreamer, he's obsessed with cycling and he loves the Italian cycling team. They're his heroes. Um, and uh, he gets around sort of pretending to be Italian, sort of talking Italian and adopting all the cultural sort of motifs of modern-day Italy, Um, and he takes it a bit overboard because he gets a crush on a girl from the local university, and uh, that comes to grief because his ruse is discovered. But uh, Dennis Quaid's in it as well, Daniel Stern, uh jackie earl haley they play the four kids uh there's uh, dave's parents um the local kids are called cutters because the local sort of populace tends to work in the quarries and uh, the uni kids sort of look down their noses at these kids so it's a bit of a class thing too ends up with a big cycle race at the university. Um, so it's a bit of a sort of you know sporting triumph movie of sorts but it's about relationships and class and um, there's some really nice understated humor in it there's some quite poignant sort of commentary about um, you know relationships between people of different backgrounds Uh, I just love everything about it for you know that sort of mainstream American production it's quite sensitive and understated and uh, it's a terrific movie. So if you haven't seen it, uh, check it out. Breaking Away is my pick. Yeah,
1: interesting. I'd go for a movie that really, I think, is universally has been seen, would not take – I'd be surprised if many people haven't seen this movie or at least heard about it. Monty Python, you touched on with The Passing of Tim Brooke Taylor, influential – band of English comedians, uh, John Cleese, um, Eric Idle. I've got to go through these now. John Chapman. One. Michael Michael Pa Graham Chapman. Graham Chapman, the late Graham Chapman. Terry Gilliam, more for illustration. Yeah. Yep. And they famously put together non secateur sketch comedy in England that was absurdist, following on maybe from The Goons and that English style of comedy. And they dabbled in... And they started to do movies. And uh, they created a movie called Jabberwocky, which was, again, a strange sort of discombobulated uh, feature film of a lot of Terry Gilliam's work involved in that. Uh, Then Monty Python and the Search for the Holy Grail through the Middle Ages. But it was their treatment of the most... Whether you are Christian or not, probably the most momentous time in in the development of man, certainly theologically and onwards spiritually, the life of Jesus and their handling of it through the story of life of Brian, I think, is them at their their absolute greatest. Brilliant, comedic um, moments in it, Uh, sort of, uh, not sketches, but... Self-contained hilarious bits, you'd call it, that put together a very intelligent movie questioning religion a little bit, questioning the story of Christ, but in the end giving a version of it that is warm and easily absorbed by believers and non-believers alike. It gives us the magnificent song at the end, incredible, to think that a few years earlier, if I told you a movie would end with Christ nailed to the cross singing, always look on the bright side of life, uh, you'd say that the creators would be um, stoned to death, but it was a fitting end to a brilliant movie. My favourite scene is when they sit in what is sort of a, um, I guess, a, a mini colosseum as the Romans set up throughout the Roman Empire and they're watching the day's goings on. Uh, there's a vendor there selling otters' noses, but there becomes a bit of a um, an ideological battle between members of the Judean People's Front and the People's Front of Judea, and very much tapping into sort of um, different factions, say of um, Palestinian Liberation Organisation, Palestinian Liberation Party, etc. But all that Middle Eastern politics, and in fact, they're all exactly the same people, just with different named organisations and very funny and culminating in that famous what have the Romans ever done for us bit, which I'm not even going to give, <laughs> give it because it's so brilliant. It is How, how brilliant is that for comedy in, in comedic oh, yeah, terms? And,
0: and uh, of course, one of the most oft-repeated uh, lines in movie history, is not the Messiah, he's a very a naughty, naughty boy. boy. Yeah. I mean, I just, um, uh, yeah. it, it, you know, what
1: have the Romans ever done for us? Education, no. and by the end it's, all right, apart from education, roads, the aqueducts, government, agriculture and safety, what have the Romans ever done for us? It's beautiful, isn't
0: it? Uh, great movie, great movie, loved it at the time, seen it innumerable times since, good selection. All right, TV. Now, again, uh probably a comment on TV in historical terms, I found uh, pretty slim pickings on the TV front in 1979. But among other shows, we had uh, the Dukes of Hazard, Benson, Trapper John MD, which seemed to go forever. Knots uh, Landing, the uh, American soap. Uh, one I thought you would pick, Finding, uh, Minder, uh, of course, uh, Dennis Waterman and... Um, Oh my God, I've just had the worst blank. He plays Arthur Daly. Um,
1: What's his name? George
0: Cole. Hello? Yeah. Who? George Cole. George Cole. Is that his name? Yeah. Oh, I thought it was. Okay. Um, anyway, Minder, very popular. And uh, not Nine O'Clock News, which was only on here briefly, I think, but that was um, pretty funny. That was with. Who's in that? Pamela Stevenson, Rowan Atkinson. Griff, rhys Jones, Rowan Atkinson. Uh, do, you, do you remember
1: the sketch with the gorilla? Gerald I don't. the gorilla? Tonight I don't. on tonight on Insight, we have famous zoologist so and so with Gerald the Gorilla. Is it true that you've been able to teach Gerald rudimentary signs and he in fact can not communicate in some small way yes it's true I've been working with Gerald now for 10 years and when I first found him in his flange of uh, gorillas in and Gerald's just sitting there sort of looking at his fingernails he goes it's a troop it's not a flange <laughs> I beg your pardon <laughs> no. you've got the okay. co- the name wrong <laughs> in fact the gorilla's very erudite
0: okay beautiful sketch. Um. I've, I've gone with a selection. I don't even know why. I didn't I, Look, I did watch the show. I was watching them all at this stage. This was definitely the um, uh, high point of the Australian soap opera or uh, nightly or TV drama was the late 70s, uh, very early 80s. Uh, of course, you know, we had uh, Cop Shop, um, Country Practice, uh, Blue Heelers, well, you know, blah, blah, blah. But... Coming off the back of Cop Shop, it was sort of around that era, we had uh, a show which ran for three years, 188 episodes, and it was called Skyways. And uh, I watched a, a tr- uh, some of the stuff on YouTube, last not to remind myself of the theme song or whatever, but one thing about Australian soaps was the cast seemed to be universal and you sort of got confused every time a particular actor popped up having to remember uh, what character they were in this one and what character they were in the one you, you're about to watch the next hour on another network. I'm talking about uh, Tony Bonner, who in Skyways played airport manager Paul McFarlane, Tina Bursell, the um, ambitious and slightly devious assistant manager of the airport, Bill Stalker, the tough security guy with the heart of gold, played Peter Fennelli, For- Peter whose character actually did... Transport to Cop Shop um, And he was on with Chris McQuaid, the feisty uh, Strong woman Who, I can't remember who she played In Skywise, but she was always feisty And strong, Joanne Samuel The nurse in The Young Doctors Who played Kelly Morgan One of the uh, desk people in Skywise Ken James He of Skippy fame Played a air traffic controller And so on and so on And it concerned the lives, loves, Uh, and other L words of all these people that worked at the Pacific International Airport. And uh, that was definitely the height of soap opera watching for me. Finally, 79, I used to watch Cop Shop, I used to watch Skyways, uh, I was watching The Young Doctors, you name it, I was watching it, and all Australian product. And do you think they can make an Australian soap opera now? Well, perhaps, thank God, no, they can't. Anyway, that's my choice of TV show, 1979. What's yours? Actually,
1: do you know why I, I, I didn't watch Skyways? Do you know why I didn't watch it? Why? Because it was absolute shit.
0: Now, okay. Well, how do you know it was shit if you didn't watch it?
1: I caught a minute or two of it because Tony <laughs> because Tony, <laughs> because Tony, Bonner and Ken James were in it. Um, now, I've got to say that my choice uh, – I've got to apolog- I've got to make an apology here because, and I'm normally very thorough. I didn't realize Minder started in 1979. Was that on English screens or on our screens?
0: Uh, well, whichever will work with the premise, so we don't stuff up the show. So, okay. so uh, I'm, I'm dumping. Uh, I'm pretty sure the show. You, I'm pretty sure the show uh, you picked did start here in '79.
1: Yeah, no, the show, prisoner did, but I'm dumping. Yeah. It, I'm dumping it for Minders. Why? Because Minders. In my top three favorite shows of all time,
0: and well, I'd- okay, just at, at the very least, yeah. I wish you'd tell me this stuff before well, we start. I, but- I overlooked
1: Minder, that was my, I'd missed it.
0: All right, you can talk about Minder, but I want you to ask me what my favourite quote out of uh, Prisoner was.
1: Okay, so Prisoner started in 79, and I did love it. I, it was a bit bawdy, and of course, in the early early days, you got Frankie Davidson on the roof and Lizzie Birdsworth and B all at their best. So what quote did you get out of that team?
0: Well, I was a Lizzie Birdsworth fan. She was a, a terrific actor, and uh, any time I think of Prisoner, a certain phrase pops into my head finally, and it is
1: bloody screws.
0: I knew you'd say that.
1: Oh, she was great (laughs) Lizzie Birdsworth. I tell you what, one and a half metres wouldn't have covered her social distancing needs the way she coughed.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Tell us about Minder.
1: Minder, just a magnificent program set in London, sort of West London, uh, is where Arthur Daly, a bit of a um, wheeler dealer, always getting sort of uh, working on the margins of legality, bide his trade in the business of doing business. Got around in a hat. Used to take his drinks at the Winchester Club, always on the slate, his favourite drink being a vodka slimline. The simple appearance of the VAT man or the tax man would have him scurrying out the door as owner Dave demanded that he pay his tab. He, because he was working on the margins, he needed a minder, and for the early genesis of the program and the first part, the first coming of minder, his offsider was Dennis Waterman, who Arthur would describe as very handy. My boy, my boy uh, Terry Tell played the character Terry, sort of amic, part-time boxer, Lothario, always popular with the women, and used his fists. In a fair way, to get Arthur out of various sticky spots. Uh, Arthur had his run ins with the police, always reoccurring characters, uh, probably the most famous of them, Inspector Chisholm, who he used to drive completely insane. There was a hiatus, and then there was a return of Minder. A lot of people thought it wouldn't succeed, where Terry was replaced with a I'm not sure the actor's name, because he wasn't a very prominent actor, um, his nephew. And so no Dennis Waterman, but it was still a very successful program. It spawned some good acting careers as well. There was a very young... Um, uh, oh, Winston. Um, you know, the actor Winston, um, big English actor. I can't remember his first name. It'll come back. I was going to say Brian Winton. No, but um, he started off in Minder. I'll give you my two favourite lines from Minder that sum Arthur Daly up to a T. One, when he was on the jury of a miscreant who clearly had committed a crime, and Arthur was trying to convince the rest of the jury to let him off. And there was Mm -hmm. an Indian woman on the jury. And he looked at the woman and he said, You can't convict him, madam. One look at his boat, and you'd realise the man's innocent. And she said, I'm sorry, I don't know what boat means. And he goes, my apologies, boat race, which is, of course, rhyming slang for face. Face. And the other great one was when he was in a pub quiz, and he was part of a pub team that was supposed to have a genius on it. They're going to win a fortune. But it came down to Arthur to answer the tiebreaker question. Yeah. Uh, and the question was, for the for the win, what is a sitar? And he smiles. He goes, "I know this. An easy shot, what is missed in front of goal." <laughs>
0: <laughs> very good. Very. No, I did like mine. I didn't watch it all the time, but I did like it. Um, all right, we've got to wrap this up quickly. But before we go from vinyl and video, a VFL memory and a very appropriate, nineteen seventy nine, of course. I've gone for uh, football oddities, uh, Fionny, of which there were quite a few in 1979, uh, to wit the infamous Sprinklers incident out at Waverley. So the old night series, of course, had teams from all over Australia. Uh, The interstate teams, as a rule, got beaten up on by the VFL sides. That wasn't the case this evening on May the 1st, 1979, where Claremont was giving a very good account of itself against Hawthorne And in fact, in a position to win this game when at a most unfortunate moment, I think early in the last quarter, the automatic sprinkler system activated, uh, completely soaking the turf, which of course didn't suit the Western Australians nearly as much as the Hawks, uh, necessitating a delay in play until it could be shut down, uh, stopping any momentum Claremont had uh, managed to build and Hawthorne ending up winning Narrowly, And the commentary at the time, I remember Bob Skilton saying uh, someone certainly isn't on Clermont's side tonight. So that was one weird one. A second weird and funny one was the old Commodore Cup, the reserves competition, which in its first year as a Sunday TV exercise in lieu of Sydney games, or there were a couple actually in 79, but on a weekly basis, The seconds played firstly at Morabin in front of literally no one sometimes. Uh, Anyway, one of the first games was between Carlton and Hawthorne with the veteran Percy Jones desperately trying to work his way back into the senior side. He was doing it tough in the twos and a famous bit of footage. I'm sure everyone's seen this where he's playing up forward near goal and uh, a ball bounces in towards the goal square. His Hawthorne opponent, loses his footing and slips over, leaving an unattended Percy Jones to grab the ball. By the time he grabs it, he's near the goal line. In fact, he's right up against the goal post. He uh, reaches down to tow it over the line and manages to miss the ball and actually kick the goal post, the ball rolling through harmlessly for a rush behind. Uh, one of the funniest moments in football history. So that was number two. Number three was going to be the famous case of the elephant at Arden Street, which got spooked and ran amuck at some pace with uh, the poor female handler sitting on top. Uh, and uh, until, finally, and I, I was going to include this because it was in the 1979 um, chapter of the Sensational 70s. And again, when I went to do a bit of research, I found out it didn't actually happen in 79, it happened in 1978, which made me think. When the Sensational 70s initially went to air and they talked about the elephant running amok, was anyone sitting there at home going, hang on, this happened last year, not this year? Or did no one bat an eyelid for some reason because people, I don't know, sort of took things in their stride or assumed what they were watching actually happened in the year it was said to have happened? Anyway, so a bit of a mystery on the football oddity front, but they—they uh, they are my football observations from '79. What are yours?
1: The year of the giant wins, high-scoring time wasn't it? 1979. Huge it was, it was
0: one of the one of the high-scoring seasons in history.
1: Yeah, huge yeah. scores were the order of the day. Uh, for my team, St Kilda, the season started well enough, even though they lost a huge number of players. After 1978, where they made a great run at the finals, they opened the season against the reigning Premier's Hawthorne at Moorabbin and beat them. Unfortunately, by round four, things had fallen well and truly. The wheels had come off, and they, the signs were there that a trip to Victoria Park was not going to be a pleasure. Uh, when you've got Don Disher, big Ballarat ruckman who looked more like a wrestler, professional wrestler than a footballer up against eventual Brownlow medalist Peter Moore, who, by the way, he got four weeks for hitting in that game. Um, You knew things were not going to be great. I was at that game, and by the time the final sign rang, I was standing in the outer that was completely devoid of anything bar 10 St Kilda supporters because we had witnessed the greatest loss in the history of football. To that stage... 178 points. St Kilda managed only three goals, 11. Uh, Collingwood kicked 30, what was it, 31-21? 31-21,
0: 207.
1: Yeah, it was the debut, interestingly enough, of Peter Dacos. And legend Mm. goes that he was brilliant. And he was very good that day. But interestingly, he was not one of Collingwood's 11 goal kickers. He kicked no Mm -hmm. goals for that afternoon. The leading goal kicker was Craig Stewart, then a Collingwood forward, would later go on to be a Richmond fullback. He kicked six goals. Rene kick helped himself to four goals. Uh, Max Richardson got goals. There were goals just being popped in by everybody. There were three Shores playing. The brothers, Tony and Ray, and the non-connected Derek. Uh, St Kilda's team was not terrible, I'll tell you that on paper, but only three goals kicked, one of them kicked by a person who was heralded as a great recruit from WA, Gary McDonald I would have rather Norman Gunston played than that Gary McDonald, he kicked a goal, Cunningham kicked a goal and Sidebottom, who went from a very good player to inept in 1979 kicked a goal as well so at that stage, you know the records just tumbled that afternoon and Collingwood's highest ever score. I think it was certainly the highest win in football history and uh, just a, a day of shame for St Kilda. But luckily as a St Kilda fan, and incredibly didn't have to wait long until the record winning margin in football was eclipsed. Because round 17 that year, Fitzroy took on Melbourne and the Demons could manage six goals 12 at Waverley whilst Fitzroy rammed on 36-22 to win by 190 points. The West Australian full forward Bobby Beecroft kicked 10. Warwick Irwin kicked five, goals five, I think. Bernie Quinlan could only manage four. But it was an enormous win, 190 points, still the record-winning margin in football. At that stage, the highest score ever in football, later to be eclipsed by Geelong up on up on the Gold Coast. But do you know there's a couple of there's some amazing coincidences between those two games, Rowan?
0: Uh, what are they?
1: In the first quarter, both Collingwood and Fitzroy kicked seven goals seven. Ah, oh, okay. At half time, both St Kilda and Melbourne were two goals five. Wow. And incredibly both Collingwood and Fitzroy kicked exactly 10 goals, five in the last quarter.
0: That is spooky. It's good, isn't, isn't it? it? That is thats is good. Um, not much footage of either of those games, unfortunately. No, uh, what that, are you doing there with your all good. phone finding? It's banging around in the background. There. All good, all good. But uh, that,
1: it, it's a pity that there's not footage of those games. Certainly, the you know both of them, even though they were thrashings, famous games of football, weren't they?
0: Absolutely. As you say, a very high-scoring year. Okay, we better wrap it up there. That is vinyl and video for this week. We will go back to another year in time next week. I think we should finish off this show with a good rant, Farnie. Let's do it. On Footyology, the rant Rant rant, of. Okay, no messing around with the rant. I'm fired up. I'm ready to go. Count me in.
1: One, two, look at you.
0: I'm pissed off with my lack of culinary skills, Finey. It's always been a big void in my repertoire of talents, and it's really coming home to roost in these days of lockdown. Well, lockdown combined with having to live your life vicariously via social media. Actually, hang on. I was already doing that way a bit long before we all had to shut ourselves inside. But you know what I mean. Of all the consequences of social distancing and quarantine, One thing I certainly wasn't counting on was the breaking out of a simultaneous epidemic of bloody baking. It's like Twitter's been turned into one giant Brumbies. Every second post is a shot of someone's freshly baked loaf of whole grain bread. And if it's not that, it's some new exotic recipe for sourdough. Call it a return to traditional values or a deep-seated psychological need to find comfort in the everyday household tasks of yore. Call it what you like. But however you dress it up, Viney, I'm no bloody good at it. Not to mention the fact I'm likely to stack on the kilos just looking at all that carbohydrate, let alone eating any of it. But it's not just baking. There's people whipping up healthy-looking salads all over the internet. Seriously, I'm seeing pictures of all this stuff that they claim they literally just threw together in a matter of minutes. And all I can ever think is the same dishes would take me several years to make. And most of that time, simply to find out what half the bloody ingredients were. What the hell are these things, and why don't I know about them? It all seems so complex to me, funny. If I had a cast-iron rule about not eating anything with which I wasn't familiar, I would have died of starvation years ago. My ineptitude when it comes to the preparation of food used to be something I could just about get away with. But then all these cooking shows sprung out of nowhere, and the whole world was suddenly consumed by gastronomic banter I felt excluded from. They even had the kids doing it. It's not that I haven't tried, but put me in front of even the simplest recipe and I go to jelly, which funnily enough is one of the few things I have been able to master. I start trembling with fear at the list of ingredients and instructions. No, I don't have any activated almonds handy. Where the hell am I going to find a quarter cup of I of newt at 5.30pm with a missus on the way home and the kids asking what's the dinner every five seconds? And will the oven blow up because I misread those instructions and put in two kilos of self-raising flour instead of two cups? When it comes to a cooking repertoire, I have precisely two tricks up the sleeve, a roast and salmon pasta. That's not much of a sleeve. In fact, I'd say it's one of those daggy short sleeve numbers with the pen stuck out of the top pocket and a bunch of keys jangling on my belt. I know I should be better at this stuff, Finey. I know I should be embracing something which could teach me about life's simple pleasures and help feed my family at the same time. But I think the horse has bolted. It's too late to become Gabriel Garte. I figure at this stage of the game, there's only one type of cuisine which is within my grasp, will help preserve my dignity, and which I can potentially master without causing everyone around me grief. I'm not even sure which part of the world it hails from, but it's tasty, it's simple, and it doesn't make too big a mess to clean up afterwards. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, Finey, but thank you, Uber Eats.
1: Roland darling, this is where you and I take divergent paths, don't we?
0: <coughs> I'm hopeless. i got no clue. Yeah,
1: I've I've hit new heights. I've, I was good before, but I'm better now. What What did your family – because we are not – spending money on takeaway it's too expensive we've had income slashing so <laughs> w- what was on the menu for your family last
0: night uh last night we had pasta now i hasten to add here that my um, my lovely partner abby is very very good in the kitchen which oh, good. saves my saves my bacon literally uh we had lovely pasta sauce and pasta and salad and garlic bread so it's I'm very well looked after but it's just if it comes down to me I got no idea we had a
1: anyway, riz, I'll, we had riz adj, we I made riz adjaj with homemade hummus
0: all right I told you about stuff I couldn't understand I, I do like hummus though. uh all right uh, I'm gonna count you in three two one rant.
1: You know, they say if you see a man walking along the street, talking to himself, rambling incoherently, he's either insane, a complete nutter, if he's broke, or he's eccentric and well worth listening to if he's got money. In other words, people with position and authority and wealth seem to get away with saying some crazy things, and during this COVID-19 break from the world that we're all enduring... It seems as though football's nutters, the wealthiest and most powerful, have no qualms coming out with some very strange ideas. Okay, Eddie Maguire's hubs are gaining some traction. I don't think they'll exist or work. Mick Malthouse wants to get rid of round one. Oh, Mick, really? But for mine, the absolute pick of the bunch would have to be powerful AFL media mogul Craig Hutchinson's Hutchinson's, uh, claim on Fully Classified or his gambit to have a Tasmanian team play in this year's AFL competition as Team 19. He says that it would inject money into the competition and says it could be done thus. All Tasmanians currently playing would have the right to return home for one season if they wanted. Every club would then have five players that would be untouchable. The Tasmanian team able to pick from outside that five within the salary cap to put together their bulk of their list. A mini draft and trade period to inject further players into the Tasmanian team. And all of this for just one season, as he would then put it back into cotton, into mothballs or cotton wool for maybe a decade away. Well, Craig, here's why your idea is absolute folly. One, the Tasmanian government will not be sinking the mega bucks into this project that you say make it so worthwhile for the AFL to pursue. Believe you me, governments, state and of course our federal government, will be looking to shore up their economies with essential services and individuals, really thrust into the world of poverty to be taken care of as a first call of order. Sinking money into a one-year football team would be so far down on the list for a Tasmanian government, it wouldn't be on the list at all. Two, what would be the purpose of this team? Surely Tasmania wants to be in the AFL and can only do so with statewide support and bums on seats. Well, these games are going to be played in front of no crowds, so exactly what purpose do they achieve? Three, Tasmanians returning home for one year to make up the bulk of the team or part of the team? You have conceded that if they don't want to, they wouldn't have to return home. Well, there's not that many good Tasmanians playing in the AFL. There's no way Jack Rewalt, in his last few years of football would leave premiership contenders or favourites Richmond to go and play for Tasmania for one year. Jeremy Howe, another top player, would not leave Collingwood a genuine flag chance to go and bide his time down the bottom of the ladder with Tassie. And beyond that, there's not a hell of a lot that really the your team, New Tasmanians, one-year team, could call on. The biggest flaw is picking players outside the top five from every club. Do you remember what happened to St Kilda when they tried to get Barry Mitchell all those years ago? Apparently, they handed the Sydney Swans a list of five players they couldn't touch and everybody else was on uh, available for selection. It caused enormous ructions at the St Kilda Football Club with repercussions felt for years. Clubs are not going to name their top five players. Footballers have egos. It would cause problems at every single club to list players in the top five and leave others out. It's a crazy idea and I guess one that in this world of uncertain futures was just being sounded out by yourself. But I tell you what, if me or Rowan would have come up with it, I bet you you would have given us the absolute rounds of the bloody kitchen.
0: Ooh, strong words. Uh, I, I tend to think it came more from the uh, world of clickbait finding. Of no, it was, on footy class- lot, it was on at Footy
1: Classified. He, look,
0: yeah, it was he said, the subtitle of Footy Classified Footy Clickbait.
1: Look, he admitted that it was not going to happen, and I guess it was just a discussion point. So uh, that, it, it comes from the world of there's no bad ideas here, except for that one.
0: All right. Uh, now, well done. Uh, we are got to wrap it up there. Um, thanks for listening, everyone. Quick final plug to our sponsors, Finding
1: I love Andrew's hamburgers, and so should you. They remain open at 144 Britport Street, Albert Park. <laughs> In these tough times... You can go and get the best burger in Australia, made fresh, as it always has been, and pass some beautiful houses there, Dyson Heppel's, Scott Pendlebury's, Mike Sheehan's. They're all West Point Property, Nick Spartel's creations. West Point Properties for the very best in a house build.
0: Nice work. Thanks to our sponsors. And thanks once again for your company and uh, really hope everyone out there is doing the right thing, staying safe, looking after those you love. And uh, let's all pitch in together and do what we have to do to try and uh, short-circuit this thing as quickly as possible and get back to relative normality. Hopefully, we can keep you company at least in the meantime and then after we do get back to normal. Thanks again, everyone. Uh, We'll see you next week.